Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Miss Kyra, and we are returning for episode 11 of our mini-series about Homer's The Odyssey, and we're looking at book 11. In this book, Odysseus follows Circe's advice about how to enter the underworld, also known as Hades, which is ruled by Hades. He must go there to seek a prophecy from a famous but dead prophet, Tiresias. While in the underworld, Odysseus sees some lost souls, old soldiers, scary sights, and a promising future, for him at least. Let's dive in. Before we begin with this book in earnest, let's talk about the underworld. According to the Ancient History Encyclopedia website, in ancient Greece, the continued existence of the dead depended on their constant remembrance by the living. While worded fancily, this means to continue to exist in a spirit form when you were dead, to continue to exist at all, the living, the people who were still alive, needed to remember you. They needed to remember you to keep your spirit alive in the afterlife. The afterlife for the ancient Greeks consisted of a gray and dreary world in the time of Homer, which was the 8th century BCE. And in this book, we see Odysseus encounter that gray and dreary world, and he sees the ghost of his old pal and fellow soldier, Achilles, the great warrior in the netherworld. And Achilles tells him that he would rather be a landless slave on earth than a king in the underworld. Not an appealing picture. Kind of makes sense about why the Greeks believed in living grandly, in making yourself a legend, in living like Odysseus. Later on, the Greeks' perception of the afterlife shifted a bit. Again, according to the Ancient History Encyclopedia website, by the time of Plato, the 4th century BC, the afterlife had changed in character so that souls were better rewarded for their pains once they had left the earth, but only if their memory was kept alive. So you were better off in the afterlife as long as you were still remembered. And continuing with the article from this website, the afterlife was known as Hades and was a gray world ruled by the Lord of the Dead, also known as Hades. Within this misty realm, however, were different planes of existence the dead could inhabit. If they had lived a good life and were remembered by the living, they could enjoy the sunny pleasures of Elysium. If they were wicked, they fell into the darker pits of Tartarus, while if they were forgotten, they wandered eternally in the bleakness of Hades. With this depiction of the gray, drab, and altogether unpleasant underworld, let's listen as Odysseus plunges forward. Odysseus and his crew set out for the land of the dead. They arrive and find the place to which Circe has directed them. They have arrived. They enter Hades. And the spirits are not as restful and dead as one would assume. It's actually rather chaotic. In order to calm them down and get their attention, Odysseus promises them a sacrifice. Not quite on the same level as Agamemnon, if you remember that. But it worked a treat, nonetheless. Then I address the blurred and breathless dead, vowing to slaughter my best heifer for them before she calved at home in Ithaca and burn the choice bits on the altar fire. As for Tiresias, I swore to sacrifice a black lamb, handsomest of all our flock, thus to assuage 
The nations of the dead I pledged these rites, then slashed the lamb and ewe, letting their black blood stream into the well pit. While these sacrifices Odysseus talks about are pretty disgusting, these sacrifices work. The words spoken, the lamb slaughtered, the dead souls gather and stir, and he sees all kinds of spirits. Brides, young men, tender young girls, old men, soldiers still in bloody gear. As Odysseus tells us, and his audience King Alcinous, from every side they came and sought the pit with rustling cries, and I grew sick with fear. But presently I gave command to my officers to flay those sheep, the bronze cut down, and make burnt offerings of the flesh to the gods below, to sovereign death and pale Persephone. Even though he's afraid, he's there for a mission. He does what he needs to do. He tells his men, sacrifice more sheep, distract the dead, make an offering to Hades and his wife, the queen of the underworld, Persephone. While waiting for Tiresias to appear, Odysseus sees another soul he recognizes. It's his good buddy, Elpinor. One shade came first, Elpinor of our company, who lay unburied still on the wide earth as we had left him, dead in Circe's hall, untouched, unmoored, when other cares compelled us. Now when I saw him there, I wept for pity and called out to him. How is this, Elpinor? How could you journey to the western gloom swifter afoot than I in the black lugger? Translation, Elpinor, how'd you get here faster than I did on foot when I was on, like, a ship? What the heck? Elpinor sighs and answers, Son of great Laertes, Odysseus, master mariner and soldier, bad luck shadowed me and no kindly power, ignoble death I drank with so much wine. I slept on Circe's roof, and then could not see the long, steep backward ladder coming down, and fell that height. My neck bone buckled under, snapped, and my spirit found this well of dark. Reading between the lines here, Odysseus asks his buddy Elpinor, how did you get here faster than I did? You weren't even on the ship with us. And Elpinor says, well yes, Odysseus, I died, and you didn't even bury me, because you didn't even know I was dead. Maybe I'm taking the tone up a notch, but that is, in essence, the conversation. Elpinor pulled a Humpty Dumpty, he fell off the roof, broke his head, and no one knew. No one could try to put him back together again. As such, no one can remember him or think of him, and so his soul is languishing, suffering in the underworld as a result. His only hope, he says, is in Odysseus returning home to Ithaca, telling people about him so they will remember him and keep his spirit alive and happy like we talked about earlier. Odysseus, of course, riddled with guilt at not even knowing a man of his had died, promises he will bury Elpinor when they return to Circe's island, and he will tell all those back on Ithaca about Elpinor. And Odysseus and his sole friend, Elpinor, continue to converse with a sword between them because apparently the souls of the dead are attracted to the blood of animals and Odysseus needs to protect his sacrifice for Tiresias. Gross. Finally, Tiresias, prince of thieves, came forward bearing a golden staff, and he talks to Odysseus. Son of Laertes and gods of old, Odysseus, master of landways and seaways, why leave the blazing sun, O men of woe, to see the cold dead in the joyless region? Stand clear, put up your sword, let me but taste of blood, I shall speak true. Tiresias calls Odysseus a few new-to-us epithets, 
son of the gods of old. Interesting. Clearly, Odysseus is not just the son of Laertes, who appears from other wordings to be a great man as well, but he is also favored by the gods, so much so that he is considered a son of theirs. Odysseus is also called master of the landways and the seaways. So, as Athena said in book one, he is unstoppable. He has created all things. He's versatile. And lastly, he's called O Man of Woe, which seems a little preemptive, a little early. Odysseus hasn't had too many woes at this point in the story. He's barely two years into his journey home from Troy. But remember, Tiresias is a prophet, so he likely knows how Odysseus' story goes. Him, bitter, alone, crying his eyes out on Calypso's island, longing for home before the gods rescue him. And Tiresias, the prince of those with gift of speech, tells Odysseus of his woeful fate. Great captain, a fair wind and the honeyed lights of home are all you seek, but anguish lies ahead. The god who thunders on the land prepares it not to be shaken from your track, implacable in rancor for the sun whose eye you blinded. One narrow strait may take you through his blows, denial of yourself, restraint of shipmates. In other words, you're going to have continued trouble because you angered Poseidon by blinding his son, and as such, the only way to try to get home is to go through one narrow strait, which a strait is a narrow but navigatable waterway. In other words, in order to escape the general wrath and anger of Poseidon, they must pass through two nearly touching pieces of land on a tiny sliver of water. That sounds easy. Tiresias continues his tale of woe. When you make landfall on Thernasia first and quit the violent sea, dark on the land you'll find grazing herds of Helioses, by whom all things are seen, all speech is known. Avoid those kin, those cattle. Hold fast to your intent, and hard seafaring brings you all to Ithaca. But if you raid the beeves, if you eat the cattle, I see destruction for ship and crew, though you alone survive, bereft of all companions, lost for years under strange sail. You come home to find your own house filled with trouble, insolent men eating your livestock as they court your lady. Real quick here. Odysseus learns, right here and now, that if his men eat the kine, or the cattle, of Helios's, they will all die. And even with this warning, we know from what Zeus said in Book 1 that this happens. So why does this happen? Well, I guess we'll have to find out later. Tiresias also says that Odysseus himself, all alone, will survive if they eat the cattle. And he will, on strange sail, make his way home. So this strange word here doesn't really mean weird. No, instead, strange as in stranger, as in unknown to you. So this means someone will help Odysseus get home by lending him a ship. And when he reaches home, he'll find trouble. Insolent, disrespectful men eating his livestock as they try to date and marry his wife. Now this idea of insolence is really interesting. In researching and getting ready for this episode, I learned about the Greek concept, and I'm not sure I'm saying this correctly, usbia or piety. But this goes beyond piety in how we think of it today. This isn't just doing with like your religious fervor or belief or strictness to your religion. It goes beyond just believing in the gods. This goes into the foundation of Greek culture. In fact, if someone were impious, they would be sentenced to death. Like Socrates, 
Socrates was found guilty of impiety for not only teaching his students to question the existence of the gods. Uh-oh. Remember the number one lesson we've learned so far is to not anger the gods. So if he was teaching people to question their existence for the people who did believe in the gods, this would be the number one way to anger the gods. <laughs> so... Socrates doing this not only makes people scared, but equally important, Socrates taught his students to question their elders. This was not okay. They, the youngins, needed to remember their place in and obligations to their society. So this concept of insolence, of disrespect, of upsetting the social order is much deeper for the Greeks than just people eating what wasn't theirs and not leaving when they were asked to. They, the suitors, upset the social order. They threw it in the trash. And they would pay, and it would be justified. Back to Tiresias's prophecy. I, you shall make those men atone in blood, but after you have dealt out death, in open combat or by stealth to all the suitors. Well, that sounds familiar. That's exactly the way that Athena worded it to the Helemachus. Hmm. Go over land on foot and take an oar, until one day you come where men have lived with meat unsalted. Never known the sea or seen sea-going ships with crimson bows and oars that fledge light holes in dipping flight. The spot will soon be plain to you, and I can tell you how. Some passer-by will say, What winnowing fan is that upon your shoulder? Halt, and implant your smooth oar in the turf and make sacrifice to Lord Poseidon. A ram, a bull, a great buck boar. Turn back and carry out pure hecatombs at home to all wide heaven's lords, the undying gods, to each in order. Then a sea-born death, soft as this hand of mist, will come upon you when you are wearied out with rich old age, your country folk in blessed peace around you. And all this shall be just as I foretold. Wow, quite long-winded, this dead spirit. In other words, Odysseus gets home. He will make these disrespectful suitors pay for their crimes in blood. Then he must make amends. He must ask Poseidon for forgiveness. They need to kiss and make up, as many parents would say. Tiresias tells Odysseus the specific ritual and location of this ritual that he must complete in order to get Poseidon off his back. And he also tells Odysseus how Odysseus will die. Odysseus will die an old happy man. He'll die a sea-born death or death at sea, as if in the soft hand of a mist, with all of his country folk in peace around him. Isn't that nice? For Odysseus. the last little bit of book 11, in our version, it says, Odysseus speaks to the shade of his mother, the ghost of his mother. And maybe you're thinking, ah, oh, that's nice. He got to see his mom again. You're right. He did get to see his mom again. But his mom wasn't dead when he left Ithaca. He has to see her here and know that she died while he was gone. So it's really horrible. He has missed her passing. He didn't know that she was gone. His mom tells him some things. Penelope and Telemachus are still grieving for him, and that his father Laertes has moved to the country where he too mourns his son. And then with that guilt trip delivered, she gives him another. She died from a broken heart because she missed her son so much. That is just horrible. His absence killed his mom. And we end on this note. Odysseus also speaks with the spirits of many great ladies and men who died as well as those who were being punished for their earthly sins. Filled with horror, Odysseus and his crew set sail. 
What the book does not tell us is how many Odysseus saw, or who, and I think who he saw is rather interesting. At this point in the book, a part we don't see in our version, Odysseus asks his hosts, the people he's telling this story to, if he can go to sleep. He's tired. But the king and queen want him to continue, and according to Sparknotes, they ask if he met any of the Greeks who fell at Troy while he was in Hades. Reluctantly, or probably tiredly, he continues his story and tells them he met Agamemnon, who told him of his murder at the hands of his wife Clytemnestra. Next, he met Achilles, who we did hear about in our version, who asked about his son. Odysseus then tries to speak with Ajax, an Achaean, or a Greek, who killed himself after he lost a contest with Odysseus over the arms, the weapons, of Achilles. But Ajax refused to speak with him and slipped away. Odysseus also saw Heracles, or Hercules, King Minos, the hunter Orion, and others, and asked for the people he saw who were being punished for their sins. He saw the punishment of Sisyphus, who struggled eternally to push a boulder over a hill only to have it roll back down again whenever it reaches the top. He then saw Tantalus, agonized by hunger and thirst. Tantalus sits in a pool of water, overhung by bunches of grapes. But whenever he tries to reach for the grapes, they rise out of his grasp. And whenever he bends down to drink, the water sinks out of reach. Odysseus found himself mobbed by souls wishing to ask about their relatives in the world above, and frightened, he runs back to his ship and immediately sails away. With these stories, we learn a bit more about the layers of the underworld. According to the Greeks, the underworld was the kingdom of the dead, the sunless place where the souls of those who died went after death. The underworld, contrary to what I've always thought, was actually divided into four regions as opposed to three. Tartarus, which was reserved for the worst sinners. The Elysian fields, which were for the most excellent of men, the heroes. The field of mourning for those who were hurt by love. That's the one I've never heard of before. And the asphodel meadows for the souls of the majority of people where they would just wander listlessly. The Elysian fields is where you wanted to go. And much like their beliefs in spirits and souls, and that those souls only existed if the living remembered the dead, which meant you wanted to be memorable, the Greeks wanted to be heroes so they could go to the Elysian fields. Thus, it was each man's responsibility to live well and to make a name for himself. Athena's urging of Telemachus to go out and take action has a lot more urgency to it than she just wanted him to grow up. She wants him to start making a story and a legend of himself. Otherwise, it's the Asphodel Meadows for him. We've come to the end of our episode, and to the end of Book 11. We looked briefly into Greek's mythology about the afterlife, and we also saw Odysseus encounter some dead souls and learn about the future. In our next episode, we'll take a look at Book 12, which is one of my favorites, which has Odysseus battling a few more monsters and losing a few more souls on his continued journey homeward. Special thanks to these sources. Robert Fitzgerald's translation of the Odyssey, Ancient History Encyclopedia, Sparknotes, and GreekMythology.com. Yeah.